You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Larry Brill on the show with me today. He has an amazing new book. It's called The Printer and the Strumpet, The Misadventures of Leeds Merriweather Book Two. And what a fantastic book. Um, you know, this was such a, a breath of fresh air, and I, I know people are really going to love it. Uh, welcome to the show, Larry. Well, thanks for having me, Hank. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Larry, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, gosh, that goes way back. Um, I remember being, about the time I could just barely write, I, I sold my first newspaper to my grandparents for a quarter, and I wrote some <laughs> story about my younger sister doing something or other, which I think was the beginning of my my uh, journalism career. But in terms of writing fiction, um, I, I always wanted to write the Hardy Boys stories. So I remember probably about seventh, eighth grade, I wrote, I started writing in the summer, um, my first total ripoff of the Hardy Boys with different characters, but it was, it was the same kind of thing. And that's the first time I really tried fiction. I love it. Um, the Hardy Boys have been a bit of a gateway drug uh, for a lot of people. You know, you start with Hardy Boys and uh, and then, you know, your obsessions grow and grow. Um, was there something about uh, uh, about mysteries that really intrigued you? No, not really. Um, I think it was mostly because I mean, that was because. Uh, it was easy, easily accessible to me. The stories were typically written for someone who was just like me, you know, a 12-year-old, 10-year-old boy. Um, but I also read, back then, um, I read a lot of sports stuff, uh, young adult sports stories. Uh, I remember Relief Pitcher was the name of one in particular that I think I read several times over. Uh, so anything that just, you know, really... I think appeal to that young boy type of thing. Those are the kinds of things that I read back then. And because I had so many, I still have, by the way, I still have the first 50 editions of or copies of the Hardy Boys in the hardback. I don't know if people who might remember the blue covers. Oh, and yeah. All of that. And I still have my original youth um, Hardy Boy stories. And I'm going to put them back up on a, on a bookshelf here someday. Oh, that would be fantastic. Reading. That is so great. Um, Larry, you had a bit of an illustrious career uh, in journalism. What what led you to um, to investigation and, and reading the news? Um, I just think I was I guess I was born to do it. I don't know. I, I remember going through when I was in junior high school, I got the uh, my eighth grade teacher. It was a small parochial Catholic school 
but I got my eighth grade teacher to let me publish one edition of a newspaper as part of a project. And then when I went into high school, I was the editor of the school newspaper. And then I went into college and did, um, did journalism in college, got my degree. Uh, although I trained about halfway through um, my college years, I sat down with my advisor and he handed me two pieces of paper. And he said, okay, Larry, here's how much money you're going to make as a reporter for a newspaper. And here's how much money you're going to make as a reporter for a TV station. And the difference was enough that I went into radio and television. <laughs> I, I can relate to that. Um, that's, so it, it sounds like this was something you were just drawn to your, your whole life. Um, was there a, 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 a journalist or a newscaster or something that had a big impression on you as a youngster? Oh, I suppose Walter Cronkite, you know, back when I was growing up. Well, that uh, was the way it was. Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. I, I was, you know, I, I used to watch, even as a teenager, I was just drawn to watching the news, whether it was Huntley Brinkley, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm really dating myself here, but uh, that and Walter Cronkite, uh, you know, the, um, they were they were something of heroes for me. And, you know, even when my parents were not not all that interested in watching the news on a regular basis, I would be the one that would like turn on the news in the in the uh, evening to watch that. And then we'd watch like the Roadrunner cartoons or <laughs> Top Cat. That was a that was a primetime cartoon show. I don't know. Anyway, um before the primetime show started, I, I'd be there watching the newscasts. Oh, that's so funny. Um, Larry, you uh, you entered a writing contest and and won it uh, early in your career, or in your writing career. Um, and it's a uh, it, it's a bit of a, a a distinction that not many of us get to wear. Um, what was that that one sentence that won? this competition for you and then tell people what the competition was. Do you want the sentence first? <laughs> <laughs> How, however you want to tell. Probably should set it up. To, to, yeah. <laughs> uh, this competition has been going on for better part of 40 years now, I believe, run by a, a group out in California. And it's totally tongue in cheek. I have to say, you know, I mean, the whole the whole point is to make fun of writing it's sure. called officially called the the Bulwer Lytton Fiction Contest. Uh, a lot of people know it as the Dark and Stormy Night Contest because Snoopy made that line famous. Um, Bulwer Lytton was the guy who wrote that originally wrote that line. But the the contest is to write intentionally write the worst opening sentence to an imaginary novel. So the idea is to write bad, and uh, it was more years than I care to think about. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting here looking up at the the San Jose Mercury News. I've got a copy of that uh the article that they put when I won when I won the competition back then. But the sentence goes like this. And I have to take a deep breath because it's a long sentence. <laughs> As the fading light of a dying day filtered through the window blinds, Roger stood over his victim with a smoking 45 surprised at the serenity which filled him after pumping six slugs into that bloodless tyrant that had mocked him 
day after day, and then he shuffled from the office with one last look back at that shattered computer terminal lying there like a silicon armadillo left to rot on the information highway. But a bomb. Larry, the, the funny thing about that, and probably the funniest thing about that, is that this um this contest to write the the worst opening sentence takes a lot of creativity and and probably takes a, a masterful writer to write something that bad in in a in a weird turn of events. Um what I do you think? Honored that you that you think so. <laughs> that, that makes me feel good. You should, because that is a, that is a glorious example of all the things not to do. Um, were there, were did you draw inspiration from any certain thing? Um, you know, because you know this is this is the the honest truth about it. When you're doing that on purpose, you kind of need to know the right way to do it so that you can do it wrong so spectacularly. Um, what were you, um, what was your, your motivation or what were you channeling or, um, you know, kind of what got you in the mindset to write that? I think it's just, it just plays well to my perverted sense of humor. <laughs> uh, I had been following the, um, the, uh, contest for a couple of years and I always wanted to, to, to write one for that. I actually submitted a sentence, um, a cup like the year before, or maybe it was two years before, um, that I had written and it got an honorable mention back then. Um, but then this, this year, uh, or the year that I, I won it and, and became crowned the official, that's the, that's the weirdest thing. <laughs> Officially, I was the worst writer in America for at least one year. But, uh, you know, the competition was going and I knew it was coming up. The deadline was coming up and I couldn't come up with anything. So I pretty much had given up on the idea of submitting anything for that year. And I went to bed and I got I had this idea in the middle of the night about the silicon armadillo getting squashed. And so I got up and I wrote down, scribbled down some notes and went back to bed and went back to sleep. I got up the next day and I saw this. And I started chuckling and I, I couldn't help myself. So I went into work uh, at the TV station I was working at at the time. And I went into work. And at the first opportunity, I just sat down and banged out the sentence and sent it in. And uh, so that's, you know, I mean, that's the story of how it came about. I, th I think a lot of writers have that perverted sense of humor that uh, that you mentioned um, th that is, that is the funniest thing that I've heard in, in so long, uh, Larry. And there, there's something about, um, not holding the, the craft of writing too precious, um, that you can make fun of yourself and, and the art form and, uh, you know, kind of the, um, the, the elbow patch, uh, tweed jacket crowd, you know, that if we can poke fun at that a little bit. I think that makes the whole thing healthier in a way. Yeah. I think one of my, my favorite quotes from a writer is Oscar Wilde's quote about life is too important to be taken seriously. <laughs> right. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So Larry, after, after having this, um, you know, honor, uh, designated to you um did did this spur you to um 
to want to write more and to, you know, take it more seriously or, or maybe not. Maybe that was taking it seriously in a in an odd way. But um, what what spurred you to write your first novel? Uh, I think when I moved to Austin, uh, there is a really, really good writing community here. Yeah. And we feed off one another. And when, uh, for instance, when I won that award, which was in the mid 90s, uh, I, re I distinctly remember having lunch with a, a, a I was going to say fellow writer, a woman who had three books on the New York Times bestseller list. And she sat there and she looked at me and she said, you know, if I could trade my pu my published books for winning that contest, I would do that. And I said, no. And she said she was serious because no one's going to remember her books. Although I, I don't think anybody's really going to remember, you know, with all the winners of the Bulwer-Lytton contest. But still, she said, that is so unique. You know, everybody writes books. But nobody, you know, hardly anybody wins that award. And I thought, well, gosh, that's kind of interesting. And it's also, uh, you know, I, again, it made me feel kind of kind of good or warm and fuzzy, if you will, that somebody who had had the success that she did thought that what I was doing was even better. And so that's when I really decided, you know, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to really take a stab at this fiction thing. Um, who is Leeds Merriweather, and 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 when did he come into your life? I was reading a book. Um, it was a nonfiction book. It was talking about the history of journalism in America, and um, there was just this one throwaway line in there. Uh, as the the author was talking about, well, you know, if you're going to talk about journalism in America, you need to go back obviously, to uh, England, to where, you know, some of those things, those influences came across the ocean and took root in America. And, and he said something about way back in the 18th century, there were these fellows called patterers, like patter, um, patterers who would run around from street corner to street corner and they would talk about the news of the day. They would deliver the news to people uh, orally as opposed to printing. And of course, their whole point was, buy my newspaper, you can find out more. But, right. uh, but And that line just stuck with me. And I thought, patterer. Well, that's sort of what I was doing as a TV newscaster. I said, so what if there was a TV newscaster way back then who was a patterer? And that then led to my first my first book in this, in this series, um, The Patterer, uh, and Leeds Merriweather was just born out of that. The um, the time period um, that you chose to set this in is not a time period where we uh, generally experience lighthearted stories, a comedy, if you will. Um, what? How did you find? the things um, that made you chuckle and that you wanted to take a lighthearted stab at uh, when you, when you started dreaming up the patterer? Well, that was actually my life. I mean, a lot of the patterer. And then of course, with the book, second book now that's, that, that is out today, um, the printer and the strumpet, which continues leads Mary Weathers um, story. 
but it was so easy to take all of the goofy things that I had encountered in TV news and put them into and imagine them. How would somebody do slow motion sports, for instance, <laughs> as a live performance? Uh, you know, the weather forecast, you know, I have I, in the patterer, I have a, uh, a Doppler, the weather dog who, you know, can predict the weather, you know, by, and as we know dogs can do that. But um, I thought, well, okay, if, you know, people are, are, are so reliant on the Doppler radar weather forecast, um, you know, how would Doppler come about back then? And I would just take a lot of those things and move them, uh, move them into the 18th century and try to imagine uh, some of those things you know, uh, how they would have done them then. Uh, one, I think one of my favorite things about the patterer is that it opens with um, really a, a tip of the cap to the theme song from Gilligan's Island and how Leeds Merriweather is telling a story about a shipwrecked group of people and it turns into the theme song from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and so there's a lot of cross reference to pop culture today in both of those books. So you've got the setting, you've got a, a character and a, and a cast of characters that start showing up. What, uh, what was the, the plot element that came to you that, uh, that, you know, um, you've got, you've got the setting, you've got the players for the setting. Now, now what do you do to them? Uh, try to get them in as much trouble as possible. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, with the printer and the strumpet, I, I knew for sure that uh, when I wrote The Patterer, I knew that there would be at least one book to follow. And now I'm thinking about it might turn into about a, a five book trilogy, if such a thing exists. I love that. But um, I, I knew that I was I, I knew that I wanted to cover the American Revolution because, again, that was one that was the period of history that appealed to me most when I was growing up. Um, for anybody who remembers the the young adult novel Johnny Tremaine, that was that was another of my my favorite books that I read as a kid and I read, you know, numerous times. Um, so that that era appealed to me and I have always wanted to write something about that and this was my my chance to just take all of that. So I get, I get them into trouble. And then I, I said, well, how can I, with the printer and strumpet, now I've got Leeds Merriweather, uh, basically experiencing and reporting on all of the things that, that made our, that made our country starting. I started him with the Boston Tea Party. And then I created some trouble for him in that uh, he has to, he has to deal with somebody who takes over his his newspaper and wants to turn it into a propaganda piece, a conservative propaganda piece for the government, which was the King of England and the governor of Massachusetts. And so I have him battling that. And then I said, okay, if, if he is forced to deal with this conservative um, bent to publish the news as they saw it, then take the opposite side of that would be a radical patriot, if you will, and have him butt heads with that character. 
And that character turned into a prostitute who was using uh, basically the information that came from the clients at the bordello where she that she ran. Uh, she would take those secrets and try to publish those in order to embarrass the government, incite the mob, and then basically overthrow the, the British government. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience, and also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news. Once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. So you've got the perfect setup for... Um, uh, for for a modern story told in 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 a couple of hundred year old setting um, where we have politics and sex and uh, all of these things just just running headlong, um, the the title gives us a hint at it. The printer and the strumpet. Uh, strumpet is not a, a word that we commonly use anymore, but that is a um, uh, would be a, a a veiled reference to a prostitute. Um, it it when did when did all of these different story elements kind of come together? Was 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 this the natural way to to look at uh, the way these um, revolutionary times uh, happened? I I think it just developed. Uh, you know, they they say there are two kinds of writers: those who are pantsers who write by the seat of their pants, and those who are plotters who write you know, extensively a good plot and they build it and they write from that. I'm a pantser. And I I knew that that Leeds was going to come across a woman that he would have to butt heads with uh, because she would be radical and, he, and he's conservative for the most part, um, especially under the pressure, under the thumb of this this friend of the governor who wants him to to be a very conservative newspaper man. And so I knew that was going to happen. She, how she turned into a strumpet, 
in terms of my thinking, uh, I I really don't know. It just sort of, it just sort of happened. Um, I don't have a lot. A, I don't have a good explanation. To say, <laughs> oh yeah, I really wanted to have a prostitute in there with a heart of gold who uh, turns out to be you know a patriot. Um, although I have to say, it did happen fairly early in the writing process, but it wasn't it wasn't really planned. By tackling this time period uh, and and the the events of this time period, um, it, we have a tendency to look back, um, especially at things around the founding of our nation, and really think of them as sacred cows. You know that we can't. You know, we 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 kind of have rose colored glasses when we look back at this at this time period and and these characters that were on the stage. Um, was it? Uh, did did you ever worry about uh, kind of poking sacred cows or things that that people might feel were were off limits to to have a bit of uh, tongue in cheek uh, humor with? No, in fact, that was my intent. Good. <laughs> I, I, I have I, I I have talked to you know Facebook groups with writers who write historical fiction, and I keep coming to them and. And saying, how come none of you guys have a sense of humor? You know, <laughs> no, nobody. There, there's there aren't very many who do that. One of my one of my favorite authors um, today is Christopher Buckley, and he writes a lot of political satire. And when before Trump took office, he found that he just he ran out of ideas of ways to poke fun at the politicians. So he started writing historical fiction. And he wrote two two pieces of satire that were set, you know, centuries ago, and they're both um, uh, uh, very interesting. And then, when of course, when Trump took office, he came back to writing current politics. He said, you know, it, it was tough to keep up with some of the funny things that were happening there. Um, <laughs> But he has returned to that. For me, it was a situation where I write funny stuff. I I, I can't avoid it. Um, you know, my uh, I, I like to think I write funny, feel good fiction, and uh, obviously it's it's worked. I've I've won some awards, and the reviews have all been great. But for me, it was just always something that was intentional. I wanted to to poke fun at these people and have a good time. And I, I don't think I ever really worried about crossing a line because I just, I don't think I'm a mean enough person just generally to, to do that. <laughs> I'd like, well, to, I'm not that mean. I don't you know. Some people might have a different idea. Well, reading your work, it would be difficult to, uh, to think that there was a, a mean bone in your body because uh, there, there's a, there's something about poking fun at and and taking a lighthearted look at something without being um, mean spirited and and I think that's something that we need to to try to get back to we we should we should be able to have fun with something without people taking it so seriously. Yeah, in in this days of the the um, narcissist playground, as I like to call Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it, it's really hard to avoid 
Um, the downside, everybody wants to write negative stuff. And, and I just, I don't know, I, that just bothers me. Yeah. So I'm trying to counterbalance that in my own little way. Yeah. Well, now that uh, the printer and the strumpet is out everywhere today, um, are you are you uh, turning your site to to book three? I, I know that you said that you wanted this to be a five book trilogy. Um, are, are you thinking of new adventures for uh, for Leeds Merriweather? Yeah, I have already got um, I've got the start of the the next book. I I don't know if I'm going to do something in between, which is what I did between the patterer and the printer and the strumpet. I wrote uh, a book called Deja Vu All Over Again, and uh, it it's it won the internet uh, the independent book publishers. Association Award for Fiction uh, in 2019. I wrote that in between the two. I've got a story idea that has been plaguing me for a while that I might write before I get around to the next book in the Leeds Merriweather trilogy. But I've already got that, and, and I've got a title for it. It's it's the Printer and the and the King's Head. And it it opens with, with an actual uh, uh, true event where when they re read the, the Declaration of Independence in New York in 1776, a mob went down and there was a statue of King George in the southern part of New York. And they pulled down the statue and they chopped it up into bits and they took the king's head in particular uh, off. And then it disappeared for months and months and months. And what happened to that to the king's head? The rest of the statue they turned into musket balls for the rebel troops um, back then. But the king's head was missing for months. And so now I've got Leeds Weather, Leeds Merriweather, trying to track down this bit of the statue and find out what happened to it. And that's the story that he's involved with. Um, in the third book. Well, I can't wait to see what you do with these characters and, uh, and, and, and see how the story continues. Uh, what a fun uh, series to get involved with. Book two, The Printer and the Strumpet is out everywhere now. Um, Larry, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Oh, that's easy enough. LarryBrill.com course i have to remember my name <laughs> <laughs> well we'll we'll put a link to it in the show notes to make it easy for people to find you um and before we go larry tell people about this uh this interview series that you're doing uh there in austin oh it, it's a really fun project it's just um a, a, another writer good friend of mine scott semigren who has won some awards for his fiction uh and i got together we wound up doing a a book signing together uh, two, about two years ago now. And we got to thinking about how many Austin authors, Texas authors, um, are just not getting the love that they deserve. So with my background in TV news and video production, uh, and Scott uh, is a, a, a webmaster, his day job is a webmaster for the Texas lottery. So between the two of us, we put together this online video interview series uh, where we would interview authors and produce a video 
and put it up online. And for anybody who knows uh, about the the famous music um, program, Austin City Limits, we decided to call ours Austin Liddy Limits. Uh, and we've got, oh, goodness, dozens now of author interviews. And they're, they're really, you know, they really came out pretty good. The production value is particularly strong. Uh, thank you very much. I'm patting myself on the back for that <laughs> one uh, because I have a little bit of experience in that, I guess. But uh, yeah, they, they, they've been very interesting, uh, you know, pretty revealing. Always something fun in there. And I think one of my favorite parts, of course, is that uh, for anybody who has seen the PBS program inside the actor's studio for 20 years, 25 yeah. years, they always ended with uh, uh, 10 questions that they would ask everybody. You know, right. what's, your, what's your favorite word? What's your least favorite word? All the, So we stole that idea from them, which was okay because they stole it from somebody else. Right. <laughs> And um, and and so we do that thing, and sometimes that's the that's the part that really I think brings out something unique about each of these each of these authors that we talk to. So I mean, it's just it's fun, um, and it's a good way just to let people know about uh, authors who I think deserve more attention than they get. Absolutely, and we can we can never have too much of that. There's uh, there's room for all of us. We're going to put a link to Austin Liddy Limits uh, in the show notes uh, as well to make it easy for folks to find uh, you, Larry. This has been so much fun chatting. We're going to put links to your books and uh, your website and and the interviews that you do in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Well, Hank, thank you very much. I'm honored that you, you know, were willing and, and wanted to talk to me. This is, I think this is great. 